morning is Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we continue our series uh, looking at that Old Testament book of Jonah. Uh, if you were with us last week, uh, I, we would love to hear actually your reflections. Do contact us and let us know how, how you found thinking about the details of a story you've probably known or heard of before. As, as we reflect on Jonah chapter 2, we're going to think about the topic of prayer. Now, prayer is something that a lot of people actually do. You don't need to be a, a Christian believer. I don't think you even need to be religious to pray. That great, great hashtag pray for pops up quite regularly on our social media feeds. Last year, we were praying for all sorts of things. We were praying for people. We were praying for places. Uh, we were praying for buildings. When Notre Dame Cathedral crashed to the ground, the great fire, people were hashtagging pray for Notre Dame. What's, what's fascinating is we pray for all sorts of things, even if we might not identify as believers, particularly as Christian believers. I, I think this is true for myself personally. I became a Christian. I uh, identified as a Christian only um, when I went to university. So while I was at school, I wasn't a Christian, but I do remember regularly praying for all sorts of things. I used to pray for uh, being appointed as the captain of the 15Bs rugby team. I prayed that uh, the girl I wanted to invite to the formal would say yes. I prayed that I'd be appointed a prefect. Some of those things happened. I won't tell you which one. You'll have to come and ask me in person when we meet back on the 12th. But, uh, of course, the reality is when we think about prayer like that, it, it feels like there's something missing, doesn't it? it? It doesn't feel sincere. It doesn't feel coherent because, of course, prayers like that emerge in a time of crisis and then dissipate, never to appear again. We don't pray consistently that kind of way. We pray in sporadic moments of intensity. And they don't often reflect a true commitment, a deep down sincere view of the world. 
that kind of prayer life comes and goes, but we wouldn't necessarily attribute it to who we really are as people. The Bible talks about prayer in a very different way, and we're going to take a, a time this morning to think about that in light of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor, uh, who passed away only recently, wrote very helpfully on this topic. Here's what he wrote. He said, Biblical prayers were not prayed by people trying to understand themselves. They were prayed by people who understood that God, not their feelings, was the centre. Human experience might provoke the prayers, but they do not condition them. It is not simply a belief in God that conditions these prayers, but a doctrine of God. Now, that last sentence is really helpful. It is not just a belief in God that conditions these prayers, but a doctrine of God. In other words, a knowledge of who God is. See, most people's prayers are shaped by the conditions of their life, by moments of anxiety or uncertainty, of fear, of desperation. Someone gets sick, they throw themselves into prayer. The world is engulfed in a pandemic. We throw ourselves into prayer. And I don't want to denigrate those moments. They're, they're real needs. They're real struggles. But I want to identify a difference between that approach to prayer and the approach to prayer that we find in the Bible, which, as Peterson says in his quote, is, a, is prayer that is shaped by our understanding of God. Now, as we come to Jonah chapter 2, a lot of things happened in Jonah chapter 1. It was a very fast-moving story. If you remember, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, commissions Jonah and sends him to go to Nineveh, but Jonah goes the other way. He gets on a boat. He gets caught in a storm. He gets thrown out of the storm, and eventually he gets swallowed by a fish. Very fast-moving story in the first chapter. But things really slow down in chapter 2. Things really slow. In, terms of, in terms of action nothing really happens because the whole chapter is situated with Jonah in the belly of this great fish. And there's a reason there because the writer of the story is, wants, wants us to slow down and reflect on what's happening. And what we see actually in this moment is that Jonah himself has undergone a, a transformation of sorts. He's actually a bit more like the sailors from chapter 1, calling on the Lord. You remember those sailors who themselves had a transformation in chapter 1? Well, Jonah has undergone, it appears, a similar transformation at this point in the story. And the point of the story is to help us reflect. Slowing the story down helps us to reflect on what it is that lies at the heart of prayer. And if Peterson's right, then it's the character of God. So I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about three characteristics of God that are, that ba that form the basis of Jonah's prayer. Now, the first characteristic of God that uh, we, really, we really encounter in Jonah's prayer is that God is the rescuer. If you can't remember much of Jonah's prayer, perhaps you remember the last phrase. Salvation belongs to the Lord, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the high point of the prayer. It's meant to, it's meant to resound in our minds if nothing else in the prayer remains, we still hear that phrase kind of resonating through, having finished the reading. Because it is God as the saviour, God as the rescuer. It is that characteristic of God that undergirds the whole of Jonah's prayer. And actually, then if you go back and you read through the prayer, what you see is a, a beautiful piece of poetry, actually, 
that has a movement that almost mimics the, the back and forth of the ocean waves, which Jonah had just hours ago found himself in. And you see this throughout. So we start in verse 2. What we see is that Jonah says, In my distress I cried to the Lord. Almost like a wave which has just crashed over his head, has plunged him deep underneath the water. And then as his head bobs up and he gets air, the truth of God comes through. God is the rescuer. He answered me. And then it comes through again in the verse, in the next section. From the deep in the realm of the dead. You see the movement? There's despair coming over him, but then he answers that with the, with the character of God. You listen to my cry. And again, in verse 4, we see this. I have been banished from your sight. The movement of the wave, he's, he's, the, the despair that is overcoming him is again answered, though, with the character of God. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. And we see another example in verse 6. The earth beneath barred me in, but... Almost as quickly as despair comes, so the character of God sweeps across. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. And it is that movement that goes back and forth, one to the other, in the prayer, which reflects this deep conviction on Jonah's part that God is a rescuing God, a rescuing God. And that is what shapes his prayer. That's what brings him to God in prayer. Now, of course, there's a question that should be answered. How did Jonah change? How did he come from the Jonah of chapter 1 to the Jonah of chapter 2? I think one of the reasons is that uh, Jonah has a deep appreciation of the scriptures, particularly in this case, obviously, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. We, we, we see in the prayer a very close correlation to a psalm, actually, Psalm 84, if you go and have a look at it over the week and you read it, you'll see lots of similarities. It's almost like Jonah has remembered, memorised the psalm and now in his moment of crisis, he's praying scripture back to God. He's praying God's words back to him. He's using the Bible. He's using Old Testament scripture as the words for his words. But we also see it littered in the psalm. Verse 4 and verse 7, there are references to the temple. Now, the temple is at the heart of God's promises to his people. In fact, in 2 Chronicles, Solomon prays this great prayer where he says, when we look to the temple and pray, God will hear us. And in a sense, as Jonah invokes the temple in his prayer, he is reflecting a deep appreciation, a deep uh, immersion, actually, in the promises of the Bible. See, when, when, you're, when your minister or when some, a, Christian, a mature Christian in your life encourages you to read the Bible, what they're, what they're encouraging you to do is, is to immerse yourself in the character of God that we find in Scripture. Reading the Bible is not a task that you just tick off so that you please God. Reading the Scripture reminds you of the character of God and actually equips your prayer life. It gives you a deeper and more coherent and sincere prayer life. It helps you to see that God is the rescuer because that storyline runs throughout the Bible. It's found in the New Testament as well. In Romans 10, Paul will say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a consistent theme in the Bible. And the more you know the Bible, the richer will you be your appreciation that God is the rescuer that you and I need. Now, the second thing, a second characteristic that strikes us, though, about God, which emerges from Jonah's prayer, is the power of God, the power of God. 
Over the, um, over the time I was preparing this sermon, I, I was looking at pictures of the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but you, you don't need to have been to the Grand Canyon to know the enormity of this geographic location. It's so big that, in fact, you, you can't see the end of it from one end. It's so large. It's, the stats on it are extraordinary. And, of course, in the United States, many people go to visit the Grand Canyon. As I was looking through those pictures that you saw, what was the thing that struck you about each of those pictures? Was it the enormity of the Grand Canyon? Or was it the centrality of the photographer in each picture? It's interesting, isn't it? There is this extraordinary, and I don't want to die, I'm not picking on those poor people. Uh, there's this extraordinary, extraordinary geographic icon and yet the, the image that's front and centre is the two people taking the picture. In a way, sometimes we can approach prayer that way. Uh, the, the biggest character in our prayer is ourselves. But that's not the case with Jonah. You see, in Jonah's prayer, the biggest character for a large part of the prayer is God himself. It is God's character. He says in verse 4, You hurled me into the ocean. Your waves and breakers. In fact, in, in Hebrew, the original language, the, the writer of the story says, your waves and your breakers. In other words, every single wave, every single bucket of water that crashed over his head, every bubble of sea foam, that all of it was under God's control. Now, you know what's so fascinating about this? In our modern mindset, when we think about a big picture of God, we think, well, a big God means a God I cannot approach. We, we would think a large picture of God might dampen our ability to come to him in prayer. But for Jonah, a big God means a God who can answer big prayers. And that drives his prayer life. And actually, that's at the heart of the biblical image, the biblical model, the big pattern of prayer. The larger your vision of God is, the, the greater your sense of God's control over things, the more you will come to him in prayer. The more you will come to him in prayer. Now, what's interesting is that many of us struggle with prayer, don't we? Many of us actually have prayer lives which are a bit more like that secular vision of prayer that I talked about at the start of the sermon. We, we, may, not, we may not post hashtags about praying for various things, but if we look at, if we were to graph our prayer life, the high points are often coincide with crises, with moments of deep need. And of course, I don't want to denigrate that, but most of us realise that actually our prayer life needs to be more consistent so that it's more sincere and coherent with who we are. If we want to actually pray as a reflection of who we are deep down, then we want our prayer life to be consistent, not to rise and fall based on circumstances. So what is it that holds back our prayer life? We get a couple of hints in this prayer. Jonah really helpfully in verse 8 diagnoses. One of the things that stops people from praying, he says in verse 8, uh, those who cling to worthless idols turn from God's love to them. Those who cling to worthless idols turn from God's love to them. Really helpful insight, actually. Jonah's saying that actually idolatry, idolatry destroys prayer life. It stops us from turning to God. We turn to those idols instead. And when I say idols, for many of us, we think little wooden carved images 
But that's not what we mean when we talk about idols. Idols are the things that we go to when we need a moment of security or safety or assurance. Idols are the things that make us feel safe when other things aren't. Idols are the things that we turn to in our moment of need first. And if, if that is not God, well, that's going to kill our prayer life. Now, that is very challenging for us if we think of idolatry in that form, not just as a, a carved image, but as this, this place that we tend to go to apart from God for safety and security. Uh, Philip Yancey, who's a Christian writer, uh, writes this about idolatry and prayer, and I think this is very helpful. He says, Prosperity may dilute prayer too. In my travels, I have noticed that Christians in developing countries spend less time pondering the effectiveness of prayer and more time actually praying. The wealthy rely on talent and resources to solve immediate problems. We can hardly pray with sincerity, give us this day our daily bread, when the pantry is stocked with a month's supply of provisions. Wow, that's a challenging quote, isn't it? It's challenging particularly for you and I who live in the West and who live in this part of the West, which is affluent, uh, which is generally speaking financially self-sufficient. It is hard for us to pray those words, give us this day our daily bread, because for most of us tuning in this morning, our pantries are well stocked. Our daily bread is there. And so is our bread for the next couple of weeks. Have you ever experienced that moment of crisis where the daily bread is not available? Did you pray then? Well, the goal is not to just pray then, but to pray always, isn't it? And it's when, when our hearts are set on other things to provide us with safety and security that our prayer life will be diminished. That's a challenge for us as to what we invest in and what we go to first what we build our first foundation upon. Whatever that is, is the thing that we'll go to first when we're in need. But it will not result in a healthy prayer life unless that thing is God himself. But of course, Jonah's prayer, Jonah's prayer is very interesting because it's not a model prayer. I wouldn't describe it as a model prayer. It has lots of things that we can learn from, that we can draw from as we seek to have prayers that are in line with the Bible's vision of prayer. But I wouldn't say it's a model prayer. There's something missing from Jonah's prayer. Have you noticed it? Think about the storyline up to this point. Jonah is approached from, by God to do something and he goes his own way. He runs away from God. And now here he is in the belly of the way of praying to God. But he forgets to say something. He forgets to say sorry. Did you notice that? He doesn't ever say sorry. And I think that that is a problem with this prayer. Jesus gives us a wonderful model prayer. In Matthew 6, it's the reading which Matt read earlier in the service. And at the heart of that prayer are those words, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Repentance, you see. Repentance is at the heart of right prayer in the Bible. Repentance, in fact, most of the great moments of Israel's history being turned around of renewal in the history of Israel come at moments of great repentance. When the king, recognising the idolatry of the Israelite nation, repents of that and turns back to God. And that model of prayer is continued. The, old, the New Testament's great picture in Matthew 6, 
known as the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus teaches from that reading, and which, in fact, we included at the end of Michelle's prayer, has repentance at its core. You see, to pray rightly is to pray repentantly. To pray rightly is to pray repentantly. Now, what kills that kind of prayer is actually pride. And I think Jonah, for all his successes in this moment, is still a prideful person. He finishes his prayer on a moment of great victorious declaration about what he will do. He has not acknowledged his failings up to this point, his rebellion up to this point. And pride is what kills repentance. Now, we know different types of prideful people. You you might know an obnoxiously prideful person. You know, that's that kind of person who they will never lose an argument. They have all the answers and they will never see that they have made a mistake. Someone like that will find repentance very difficult, of course. But pride finds subtle differences. Sometimes you you can appear to be actually a very humble person, but you're actually just insecure. You're so worried about your impression, what people will think about you. You're very insecure about yourself. That's a form of pride, actually. And that kind of pride kills repentance too because you don't have the resources to open yourself up, to talk about your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. Pride kills repentance. And pride kills a truly repentant prayer. If you aren't able to talk about your weaknesses and bring them before the Lord, then ultimately your prayer life is always half-hearted and not truly sincere and coherent. Now I want us to notice something before we finish. It's verse 10. Notice what God does. Because Jonah prays this prayer, which in large part has got great things to it, but fundamentally fails to repent of his rebellion in chapter 1. And yet, do you notice what God does? He saves Jonah, doesn't he? He causes the fish to vomit Jonah out onto the land. And that tells us something very important about God's character. Some of you will know that before I came to work at, uh, ch- in church life, I was a lawyer. I worked in litigation for a number of years. And as a law student, one of the first subjects that you learn is contract law. Now, I know we have a few lawyers in our congregation, so bear with me as I take you back many, many decades to those early years of your law degree. But at the heart of contract law, for those of you who aren't lawyers, is this concept of consideration. It's very important, actually. You can't have a real contract without consideration. Consideration is a bargain where two people exchange things. So, for example, it doesn't need to be, val- it doesn't need to be equal value, but it needs to have some value. So I might come to you with a computer and you have a bottle top that I want. We exchange it. That's a contract. They don't they don't, and they don't have the same value, financially speaking, but there is a value and they've been exchanged. If I was to come to you with a computer and just give it to you, well, that's not a contract. That's a gift. And why do I tell you about this? I tell you about this because, you see, grace, which is at the heart of God's work, is not a contract. Grace is not a contract. There is no exchange going on in God's grace. See, grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. Now, some of us might think that we believe that, but actually, if we, if we think about our interactions with God, what really is often happening in our head, we think, is something more like that computer bottle top exchange. God is coming with extraordinary gifts, inheritance, um, which doesn't perish, spoil, or fade, eternal life, love, concern, provision, 
And we are coming with something small, like a prayer of repentance, or like a moment of faith or trust. It's only really 2% of the equation. He's, he's giving us 98%. And we think about grace like that. But you see, grace is not a contract. Grace is an extraordinary exchange where God does all the exchanging on both sides. He comes to us with all the promises and he fulfills all the requirements in Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at a verse from Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is an extraordinary verse and an extraordinary insight into grace. While we still did not understand our need, our failing, our brokenness, Christ died for us. In other words, God rescued us before we even realised we needed to be rescued. That is grace. That is grace. You have not heard that anywhere else but in the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's word. Everywhere else, grace is in part some form of contract, but in the Bible and in the gospel, it is God doing all the work for you, coming to you when you do not even realise it. And, you know, the more that we believe grace, to the extent that that truth, that profound, extraordinary truth of grace permeates your heart, it will change your prayer life. It will change it. See, because if you are a prideful person, an obnoxiously prideful person, but you have come to believe grace, you will realise you have nothing to hang your hat on. You have done nothing. You have nothing to provide, nothing to boast about, and that will break you, and that will bring you to your knees, and that will bring you to repentance, and that will bring you to right prayer. But equally, if you're someone whose pride makes you insecure, unable to open yourself up and, and, and reflect your vulnerabilities in your brokenness and your weakness, unable to talk clearly about your failings, grace brings you assurance and freedom because it tells you that God loved you before you disclosed your weaknesses. God did everything that was necessary before you were willing to talk about your vulnerabilities. And so even if you talk about them, when you talk about them, when you disclose them, you already know God loves you and God accepts you and you are safe and secure with him. Grace transforms our prayer life and it makes us ready to repent. And that is good news. Now we're going to spend a little moment doing exactly that. We're going to respond to grace by responding in repentance. We repent knowing that God is good and kind to us. A prayer is going to come up on the screen. And uh, I want us to pray that prayer together. But I want us to pray that knowing that the door to God's love and mercy has already been opened to us by Jesus Christ. And this prayer simply accepts that. Let me pray. And why don't you pray with me? Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us.
and restore us to the joy of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You know the great news of that prayer is that even before you prayed it, God was ready and willing to accept you. But having prayed it, you can be assured that that forgiveness is yours. That is the goodness of grace.